So let me uh, say a little bit more about myself because I know most of you don't know me. It was actually 22 years within a varsity in a variety of places and roles. And then uh, I was uh, on, staff, on staff for church, for one church for about three and a half, four years, and then seven years in Wayland. Um, I'm the uh, father of four children, a son and three daughters, and husband of one wife. Yeah. And uh, unlike Tom, uh, I haven't lost 30 pounds in the last, you know, year. So I'm not planning to lose it either. So <laughs> we, <laughs> we are in the third week of a series on the life of Jesus. And, and just like what we did with the Old Testament, we are, we're doing a big sweep uh, we're not covering all the details. We're giving you the big picture, the big theme. It's kind of like, you know, when my kids were younger, I've, our, my son's 24, and then I've got a 22-year-old daughter, and uh, a 19-year-old daughter, and an 18-year-old daughter. When my kids were younger, we used to take them to Davis Farm in Sterling. I don't know if any of you have ever been there. But every year they have this mega maze. They, they build a maze. It's a new, and they do a different one each year. And you get into the maze, and... I'm shocked every time I go, we've gone several times, I actually get lost in it. How, how can you get lost in this maze? But it happens, I get lost, can't find my way through, it takes, takes us forever. But if you're looking at it from one of the towers or the walkways they have, you can see exactly where everybody is, and you, you know where the entrance is, you know where the exit, I mean, it's just crystal clear. And I can imagine the people who work there look down just laughing all the time at all the people who just keep running into hedges. Well, I think a lot of people read the Bible that way. The Bible, you know, it's 66 books, over 40 different authors, written over a couple of thousand years, and it gets, it feels like a maze sometimes. And it's helpful to be able to sometimes get up on the tower and look down and kind of get a bird's eye view so that you know what, where the twists and the turns lead. That's what we're trying to do. That's what we did with the Old Testament. That's what we're trying to do with this series on the life of Jesus. We're trying to give you a from the tower view, looking down, if you will, into the maze. So that when you're in the middle of it, as you're studying the Bible, reading it on your own, you don't get lost. You can follow the twists and turns and know where they're going to take you. And you don't get frustrated because it just doesn't seem clear to you. We're trying to give you a path a way to see the path through the intricacies, the complexities, and the beauty of, of Jesus and scriptures, okay? So the topic for today is uh, Jesus the teacher. Jesus the teacher, the teaching of Jesus. And uh, I want to start by making claim that Jesus really is the world's greatest teacher. In the first century, Jesus was referred to as teacher over a hundred times, teacher of teacher teaching over a hundred times in the Gospels, and crowds just crowded to hear him. I mean, large crowds crowded to hear him, and they would stay for hours, sometimes even days. For example, when Jesus, you know, when you, you know the story of the feeding of the five thousand and then of the four thousand, at one point Jesus says, "They've been with me three days, and they have nothing to eat." Now, I've heard some riveting speakers in my day. But none of them made me want to miss lunch. <laughs> they just didn't. 
But Jesus would hold crowds so they'd be willing to stand there and listen to him for hour after hour after hour, days, even if it meant missing breakfast and lunch and dinner and breakfast and lunch and dinner and breakfast and lunch and dinner. You got to be good to hold people's attention for that long. He was a great teacher. When people would debate with him in sort of the Q&A kinds of stuff, he could cut right through the heart of their question or their argument or their objection. He could just get to the kernel of something. That's, that's hard to do. He was great at it. Paul said of him, you we're studying the book of Colossians in our life groups. Paul said of him in chapter 2 that in Christ is hidden all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. Paul is saying, this is the guy. He knows everything. He's got wisdom and he's got knowledge. You can find it when you listen to his teachings. I once heard, uh, several times actually, heard a guy named Dallas Willard speak. Dallas Willard, when I, the first time I heard him, I heard him say that Jesus is the smartest man who ever lived. And that kind of struck me because I'd never really thought of Jesus that way. And then Dallas Willard made his case. Now, one thing you should know about Dallas Willard, he's a professor of philosophy. At the time, he was the head of the Department of Philosophy at the University of Southern California. A well-known, well-respected philosopher in both Christian circles and secular circles. And he says... Repeatedly, that Jesus is the smartest man who ever lived and that Jesus' teachings are the greatest teachings ever given. But you don't have to even trust Dallas Willard for that. Think about your own experience. I became a follower of Jesus in college. Prior to entering college, I'd never read even a word of the Bible for myself. I'd heard it read a couple times, but I'd never read it for myself. But I still knew some things about Jesus and his teaching. I'd heard phrases like the Good Samaritan or the Prodigal Son. I'd heard the Golden Rule. I knew that came from Jesus. I'd heard things like, you know, do not judge lest you be judged. Now, even though I didn't spend hardly any time in church and never read the Bible for myself, those teachings of Jesus were so powerful that they captured a culture over thousands of years, over the last couple of thousand years. So even in what we call post-Christian America, people still know something about the teaching of Jesus because you can't, it's just so good. He's a great teacher. When I was in my second year of campus ministry, uh, I wanted to, to uh, reach out to faculty on campus and I didn't know how to do that. And the idea came to me, I'll just invite them to a Bible study. But I knew that they weren't going to come to just any Bible study because they don't care about the Bible, a lot of them. So I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll invite them to the greatest ethical teaching ever given, Sermon on the Mount. So I started going through the departments, philosophy department, history department, sociology department, psychology department, and saying, hey, listen, I'm, I'm a campus minister. I'm new on campus, been here just a year. Uh, I'm getting to know the campus, but I thought it'd be fun if a bunch of us got together and started discussing the Sermon on the Mount together. Because as you know, it's the greatest ethical teaching ever given. Now, a lot of them looked at me like I had two heads. And only a few of them said yes to the discussion. And we met, and, and some incredible things. It's a good story, which I'll tell it another time. But some incredible things happened to them. But I asked... I, 
Sometimes, something like 21 or 22 faculty, only a half dozen of them agreed to come to discussion, but none of them denied or argued with my assertion that Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount was the greatest ethical teaching ever given. They just kind of accepted that. Jesus was a great teacher. So that raises the question, what did he teach? What was really important? What was the core of his message? Now, Jesus taught a lot about love. He taught a lot about grace. He taught a lot about forgiveness. He taught a lot about mercy. He, uh, he talked a lot about money, sex, and power. All those things. He was willing to speak truth to power. He did all that kind of stuff. All those things were important in his teaching, but they weren't the core of his message. As Tom said a couple of minutes ago, the core of Jesus' message was the gospel of the kingdom. The core of Jesus' message was the kingdom of God and what that means. In uh, the gospel of Mark, the gospel begins, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written, Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you. A voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And then right after that, there's a fulfillment of that prophecy. John the Baptist comes, who prepares the way of the Lord, preaching a baptism of repentance. And John prophesies, and he says, there's somebody coming right after me who's way greater than I am. I, I'm not even good enough to tie his shoes. And then Jesus comes, the one that John prophesied. And what does Jesus do? He stands up, his very first public announcement, and he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. That was the core of Jesus' message. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe this good news. It's a stump speech, if you will. Jesus' stump speech. And if you don't, if you miss it that time, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 4, 43, that, you know, Jesus has been teaching and healing and doing great things and crowds are gathering and they're after him. They want him to stay. He says, no, I've got to keep moving on. I've got to preach the kingdom of God to the other towns also. Why? Because this is the purpose for which I was sent. Jesus is saying, my purpose, I was sent by my Father. My purpose was to preach the kingdom of God. It's his stump speech. It's its core message. It's the thing around which everything else coheres. Everything else he talks about fits under that category, speaks into this idea of the kingdom of God. He talked about it at the beginning of his ministry. He talked about it at the very end. Acts 1, chapter 3, Jesus has been crucified. He raises from the dead. And right before his, he's on earth for 40 days before his ascension, he meets with his disciples. What does he talk about? Luke tells us in verse 3 of chapter 1 of Acts, he talks to them about the kingdom of God. He talked about it in his prayer. You know, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples as we just... Um, just uh, pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What's the rest of it? The next line? Your kingdom, yeah, your kingdom come. Your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. He talks about it in his parables. The kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like um, a treasure hidden in the field. The kingdom of God is like a merchant looking for fine fe- uh, pearls. The kingdom of God is like a king who gave a great banquet. A lot of Jesus' parables, in fact, all of his parables in one way or another speak about the kingdom of God, some aspect of the kingdom of God. So what does Jesus say about the kingdom? What is the kingdom? Well, let's talk about what it's not first. It's not just this subjective feeling in our heart, this spiritual feeling. It's not just that. It includes that, but it's not just that. It's not the church, although the church is really the, the agent of the kingdom of God right now, but it's not the church. It's, it's, the kingdom of God is bigger than the church. It's not a place. It's not a place you go when you die. It's not heaven. What the kingdom of God is, it's, a, it's Jesus' rule, his reign, his sovereignty, his authority. The kingdom of God is wherever the king's rule is recognized. So go back to Mark chapter 1 again. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. How? What happened? Well, what happened is that the king came. The time is fulfilled because the king has just announced, he's just inaugurated his kingdom. That's why the kingdom, the time is fulfilled. The king has come. The long-awaited king has come. And then it raises the question, well, okay, anybody can say that. You know, I mean, I could say I'm the king. Uh, you could say you're the king. I mean, all kinds of people have, have made all kinds of claims about them. What's the proof? And what Mark does in the next chapter and a half is he gives us six examples that vindicate Jesus' claim that the, the time is full, the kingdom of God has come, the king has come. Six examples. So what we see following this is Jesus calls, his, calls some disciples. He sees Peter and John and James and Andrew fishing. He says, come, follow me. Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He's, he's claiming authority, the right to claim authority over their lives and over their vocations, their callings, if you will. And they recognize their authority. They drop what they're doing, and they follow. They come. And then Jesus is in, Jesus sees a man who's possessed by a, a demon. And he calls out the demon from that man. And people say, wow, who is this? What is this authority? Even the demons obey his command. He has authority over sickness. He heals people who are, who are ill. All kinds of illness. People from all over come to him and he heals all of them. He has authority over people's understanding of the law. He, it's a new teaching. He claims to have authority to forgive sins, something that only God has authority to do. But he heals a guy who's been paralyzed in the beginning of chapter 2. 
And, the, and, and he says, you know, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees, the teachers of the day, get really offended, bent out of shape. And Jesus turns and says, so you may know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. You stand up, take up your mallet, your pallet, rather, your, your mat, and walk. And the guy gets up and walks. He's authority over who's in the kingdom. So right after that, he calls a hated tax collector. He says, hey, I want you to be in my kingdom. And a guy comes into the kingdom. Jesus has authority. It's proved. And he proves it. What he does vindicates what he says. The kingdom of God really is at hand. But that raises kind of a question. Okay? Jesus makes the claim that the kingdom of God has come in his person. He makes the claim that the rule of God has now been inaugurated on earth. And he says that this is good news. And it's good news, why? Because the king himself is good. He's got all power and authority. He's got all wisdom and knowledge. And he uses all of that to do what? To bless people. To save people. To turn people's lives around. To heal them. To restore them. It's good news because the king is good. But, you know, power and authority and wisdom and knowledge and righteousness and justice and peace and wholeness, that's all that Jesus said. Jesus, that's all part of my kingdom. That doesn't describe the world that I live in. It doesn't describe the world that you live in a lot of the time. So there's a tension here between what Jesus said and what we see and experience. There's a tension between what Jesus says the kingdom is like and the news reports about a massacre in Newtown, Connecticut. And over 60,000 people, most of them innocents, killed in Syria. Or what's going on in Mali right now. Or, you know, you can think about dozens of examples. So what's going on here? How is it possible that the kingdom of God could really be here? Be here and that the king could be really good and have all power and authority and wisdom and knowledge. And yet the world being so messed up. And not just the world being so messed up. How is it possible that I could be so messed up? How is it possible that I can violate my own conscience, my own values, seemingly at the drop of a hat? How is that possible if the king has really come? It's a tough question. And it's not a new question. That's the question that John the Baptist had. Uh, Let me read a passage from Luke chapter 7. John the Baptist is now in prison. He's been arrested by Herod. He's been arrested because John was bold enough to say, Herod, you are an unjust king wielding power unjustly and for your own pleasure and you will fall under the judgment of God. 
in Herod's, and in particular, says you're, you're, you're in an adulterous relationship with your brother's wife. And that brother's wife gets really ticked off. She kind of maneuvers Herod a bit, and John the Baptist ends up in jail. And Jesus, at that point, begins his ministry, and John is hearing about it from his disciples who give him reports. Luke chapter 7, starting with verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, all the things that Jesus was doing and teaching. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Are you the one who is to come? Or should we wait for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is here. And John the Baptist says, wait a minute, I don't see it. I don't see it. And Jesus then says, well, look again. The blind receive their walk, their, their sight rather, the lame walk, the deaf hear, lepers are cleansed. Go look again. What Jesus is doing in his answer to the disciples of John is he's quoting passages from the book of Isaiah, particularly Isaiah 35, and saying these were the promises of what the kingdom would be like. Do you see it? Do you see them happening now? Do you see them being fulfilled? And then he says, blessed is the one who's not offended because of me. That's a way of saying, John, look again and think again. So what's John's problem? John's problem here is that he was the one that pointed to Jesus in the first place and said, this is the guy. This is the one we've been waiting for. But Jesus has been doing things the way John expected him to do things. John expected that when the Messiah, if you will, came, when the king came, that he would restore the kingdom to Israel, that he would um, expel the Romans and their rule, that he would tear down false kings and brutal kings, that he would be delivered from prison. And that the reign of God, the good and just and righteous, holy reign of God would reign, would begin then. And it would begin, would begin with political power. That was part of the Jewish expectation of the day. There were a number of expectations. There, the, the teaching about, about what the kingdom would be like and how it would come was, was mixed. There were different opinions in the first century. There's some, like the zealots, who believed it would come through an armed rebellion. 
This is actually part of what happened in the 2nd century BC with the Maccabees. They revolted against the heirs of Alexander the Great. And for 70 years, they were able to keep foreigners, the foreign powers, unjust powers out. And then they were crushed by the Romans. So they expected it would come again in a greater, fuller, lasting way. That there would be armed rebellion. That's what the zealous expressed, that's what they were working on even during Jesus' day. There are others like the Essene community who expected that there would be this apocalyptic kind of end of the world when the sons of darkness would fight against the sons of light and then God would rise up and just win the day and that would be it. Uh, Different views, but what they had in common was that the unjust powers, and in this case particularly the Romans, would be destroyed. And God would restore his temple and his kingdom in Israel. And John just doesn't see any of that. That's what he's expecting, some form of that. And he doesn't see any of that. And he's starting to wonder if he made a mistake. Maybe I pointed to the wrong guy. And what Jesus is saying to him, no, look again and rethink your expectations. And I think that Jesus needs to say that to us on a pretty regular basis because we all have expectations. We all have expectations about what life with God, life with Christ, life in the kingdom should look like, right? There shouldn't be a Newtown massacre. People shouldn't die of cancer. People shouldn't be fired because of some, you know, for whatever. Not the followers of Jesus. That shouldn't happen to us. Our marriages shouldn't break down. Our kids shouldn't rebel. None of that's supposed to happen when you follow Jesus, right? But it does happen. It happens to all. Something happens to all of us. The world isn't the way We want it to be. The world wasn't the way John the Baptist wanted it to be. So what Jesus is saying to John is, look and see what is happening, not just what you're hoping for, and rethink your expectations. And so we have to rethink our expectations and pay attention again to what Jesus says about the kingdom. The kingdom will be a place of righteousness and wholeness and peace. It will be a place where evil will no longer exist, where God will wipe away every tear from every eye and where there will be no more pain and sorrow and loss and grief. That will happen one day. But it isn't where we are now. And he gives clues, at least clues about that. For example... In Mark chapter 4, Jesus talks about the kingdom being like a mustard seed. And mustard seed is a small, insignificant seed. You look at it, you can barely see it. And Jesus says that mustard seed will grow and become a big plant, a really big plant, so that birds can take their ne- can shade and you know, make their nest in there, shade, put, you know, in the, in, be in the shade of that mustard plant. He says, really... That the kingdom of God, ultimately what he's saying, what the, when you look at it all together, is that the kingdom of God right now seems small and insignificant. 
But one day, it's going to be obvious to everyone. It's going to be obvious. He's saying that the kingdom of God is here. It's really here. But it's not yet here in its fullness. So we live in the tension, in the times between already here, but not yet fully here. We live in the time where we see some of the goodness of the kingdom. We taste it already. We experience the goodness of the rule of God over our lives. But it's not yet complete. In the midst of the goodness of God, in the midst of the signs of the kingdom, there are clearly signs of the devil as well. There's wheat in the field, and there are weeds, Jesus says. But there is going to be a time when the kingdom will come in its fullness. And it won't come by human effort. It won't come by armed rebellion or political maneuvering. It won't come all at once in this one, you know, it's going to come. And the reason that the people of God need to repent and believe the good news is because it isn't so obvious that you don't need faith. We need faith to believe. What we need to repent of is our own expectations of what the kingdom will look like and what it will mean for us to follow Jesus. We need to ex- repent of our own self-centeredness where we want the kingdom to be just kind of you know, peaches and cream for us. Now, we need to believe because there are signs of the kingdom, but sometimes hard to see them. And we need to believe it's good news. We need to believe the king, it's good news because the king is good. He's really, really good. And he's doing stuff in our lives. So when Paul says in Romans chapter 8, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, we need to really believe that. Even though everything in us and in our world says there is condemnation. People accuse us, the devil accuses us, we accuse ourselves. When Jesus says we are more than, when Paul says we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus, that neither death nor life nor powers, nothing visible, nothing invisible, uh, neither angels nor demons, nothing can separate us from the love of God. We need to believe that even though it's hard for us to believe in the love of God sometimes. But we believe it because Jesus really is the king. He has conquered sin and Satan and death. He's done that on the cross. See, the hard part about believing the kingdom is, you know, we like to, you know, we believe in kings who come with power and who just wield their power and, and, you know, slaughter their enemies. And Jesus came in humility. He came as a babe in the womb needing somebody to change his diapers. He came as someone who needed to be taught how to walk 
and how to talk and how to feed himself. He came as somebody who had all the privileges and power of heaven, but he put all of them aside and lived in all the humility and sorrow and brokenness of this world. He came as somebody who could have called thousands of angels to deliver him, but didn't call even one and instead went to the cross. He lived a life of sacrifice and suffering and shame and death. Because that's the way the kingdom of God has come into our world. And that's the way the kingdom of God is growing in our world. And so we need daily to repent of our own desires for comfort and security. And we need to believe in an all-powerful king who is a suffering savior and who calls us to a life of love and grace and humility and compassion and sacrifice and suffering as well. It's that kingdom that's going to win the day. It's that kingdom that will be obvious to all one day. And we get a chance to taste it, be part of it, to be, if you will, on the ground floor of it right now. That's good news. That's good news. We're called as the followers of Jesus to live in the light of Jesus' kingdom, Jesus' rule right now. That means we're called to live lives that model his life. It means that we're called to live lives of servanthood and of sacrifice and of love and grace and forgiveness. We're called to lay down our desires for revenge or vengeance or unforgiveness and to forgive and to love even our enemies. We're called to do good. We're called to be salt and light and leaven in this world. And the only way we can do that is if we embrace the rule of Christ for ourselves and ask the Spirit of Christ to come in us and fill us daily. We can only live the life of of the kingdom of God in the power of the Spirit of God in Christ. And we get a chance, even now, to invite Christ and to allow Christ to fill us from the inside, to make us the people we are created by God to be in the first place, people who are, yes, marred by sin, broken by sin, but being restored. And as people watch the the rule of God, the kingdom of God taking over our lives, they start to see the goodness of the kingdom for themselves. That's the great privilege we have as the followers of Jesus in a time that is already here, but not yet full. 
we get to demonstrate that and be part of what God is doing in the world. And there's nothing sweeter, better, deeper, more holy than being part of what God is doing to redeem and to reshape and to save this world by bringing it under his shalom, his wholeness, his reign. That's good. That's good news. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have come. You have inaugurated your kingdom and you're expressing your kingdom through your people even now. Thank you, Lord, that you are the king over all things. Thank you that your rule will be completely consummated one day. Thank you that we're a part of it now. We don't have to wait for that day. We can live under your rule right now. Lord, I pray for myself, for each of us, that we would embrace your rule and trust in your goodness and live as your people every moment of every day that's before us. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Reveal yourself through us. May your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. Amen. Amen.